Hi there. If you're hearing this, you found the bonus companion episode for our interview with Dr. Marcella Benitez. This is additional content from my conversation with Marcella that I couldn't fit into the main episode, but that I also couldn't simply cut and throw away. If you're looking for the main episode, and we recommend you listen to that episode first, go back to your podcast feed and select the episode titled Episode 5, Marcella Benitez on Social Comparisons and Cognition in Non-Human Primates. If you're here for the bonus episode, you're in the right place. What you'll hear after this intro are a series of lightly edited, mostly unconnected pieces of dialogue separated by pauses. A few snippets connect to topics covered in the main episode, but hopefully each should stand on its own. And at the end of the supplemental material episode, we've included the entirety of our show's theme music, written by Sally Street at Durham University. Usually we only get to play you 10 to 30 seconds, but this is supplemental material and there are no rules, so we thought it would be fun to include it in its entirety. We're eager to hear what you think about this new format for bonus content, so let us know at animalbehaviorpod at gmail.com. That does suggest that, you know, just having, you know, it's not even just competing. The other group is present and, and threatening this group. They increase that, that rate of cooperation. Um, so it does suggest that there's sort of an underlying component here that uh, between group contests increases cooperation, but it does so in the context of situations in which we wouldn't maybe usually cooperate with our in-group. So it's a really strong unifying force. And and by the way, I think that this is a super important phenomenon in terms of understanding politics in the U.S., uh, that 40 years ago, uh, there was partisanship, but not to the same degree because there was a common enemy, right? We were in a bipolar world. Mm-hmm. The Soviet Union was was the epitome of evil. Everyone agreed on that. And so smaller agree- smaller disagreements were, were less important. And then as we've moved into a unipolar world in the last 25 years, there's no one to fight with except ourselves, right? Um, right. Yeah. yeah and I've, I've, that's something I've been thinking about a lot with you know everything that happened with the riots on, on January 6th. Because it was a really interesting moment where a massive a decision was being made by individuals that was along partisan lines. And then um, there was essentially, you know, a threat, an outgroup threat, despite perhaps individuals belonging to the same political, um, you know, parties. It was still an outgroup threat. The individuals in Congress were being attacked. And then there was a, sh- a shift. There's seven or eight individuals who were going to vote one way, change their decision and vote another way. Because now the, the unifying group right wasn't being Republican and, and Democrat. The unifying group was being American, was being Congress, was being, you know, the individuals who want to protect democracy. And and I thought that was a, just a really interesting, um, you know, if you can separate the, the, the fear and terror of our democracy falling apart and, and take a really nerdy look at that, I thought it was a, just a very interesting snippet of, of how conflict can really influence cooperation, but how it can influence decision making. Um, and the importance of social context in, in understanding an individual's choice, because presumably, presumably these senators that shifted their decision to say that the results of the election were invalid to saying that they stood um, had exactly the same information prior to the riot as they did after the riot. There was no new information. Right. The only thing that changed was social context and and the, the risk and cost of, of making that assessment. So I don't know. These are things I think about a lot. Oh, that's um, super interesting. I really like that. Yeah. And so when you study social animals, whether it's humans, social primates or any social animal, we, we, we have to study them within their social context to really understand the factors that are influencing the decisions that they make. And and that's something that I, I think is super important. Um, there's such wonderful work that goes on in 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 comparative cognition laboratories. Um, the captive work is is so important to understanding what non-human primates are capable of and, and uh, ultimately what mechanisms drive the choices that they make. But 
if it's void of any social interaction, if it's void of, of normal social context or even ecological validity, then we really will never know when or why those decisions could be adaptive um, or what factors change an individual's choice. And that's so important. If we know the factors that influence an individual's choice or can change one, then that's telling us a whole lot about the selective pressures um, that might be going on for that specific type of decision making process. So um, that's that's sort of what, what my research is trying to do is all right, we've done this really wonderful work in the lab. Now let's get out to the wild. Now let's find ways that we can actually understand decisions that are being made, but allow for all of the normal, chaotic, crazy social interactions that are occurring um, in these individuals' natural habitats. I've really enjoyed reading and thinking about social comparisons recently, because mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. something that I n never thought much about before. So in this section, I want to just run through some of the things I've been thinking about and get your thoughts. And as a sure. novice in this space, if I say something that's like not thought out, just tell me that because that'll be fun too. <laughs> so first, uh, since I read your chapter, I've been trying to be cognizant of ways in which I compare myself to others, perhaps without realizing I'm doing it. And so yesterday I was washing dishes and I wash a lot of dishes and I caught myself thinking, I'm pretty good at washing dishes. I bet I'm better than most people at washing dishes. <laughs> and so can you relate to that at all? And, and I guess more broadly, yeah. has your studying of social comparisons affected the way or the extent to which you compare yourself to others? Oh, totally. I mean, I'm a very competitive person in general, so I don't need a lot of help to feel like, you know, I, if anything, it, it's a big motivator for me when I'm comparing myself to others to, um, you know, feel like, oh, I need to, to be better at, say, washing dishes because Matthew's amazing at washing dishes. Um, but I think it's one of those things that, yeah, like you, you can you can see it as being really beneficial. Like maybe you felt really good about yourself in that moment for how good you are at washing dishes or maybe someone comes along who's really good at it and you're like, oh, I got to up my game, mm -hmm. you know, and, and there's really no actual contest. It's just something that you feel like you have to do. Um, but I think you could also see ways it's like to be really potentially bad to do. And I think that's where. Like this whole thing of, um, you know, Instagram and, and social media and that our social world isn't the social world that we interact with on a daily basis. So our social comparisons are no longer, you know, just within our immediate social sphere, but can um, be sort of broadcast to a larger group. And they're often not real social comparisons, right? People are not putting the negative stuff up on social media. They're putting the positive. And then you think, wow, look at all of my friends from, from elementary school that I've never actually interacted with and haven't interacted with for the last 20 years. But look, they have kids and they're my age or they tend to have really good careers. Look how happy they are with their partners. And that's not the situation I'm in or whatever. And then that causes you to feel less than, right? It causes um, you to feel like you're not uh, being successful in the ways that your peers from elementary school are. And that's not really a good comparison to make. Like These are not people that you're interacting with on a daily basis. Um, there's no potential benefit of you making these comparisons with, with these individuals. So, um, yeah, I think that's the stuff I, I've become more aware of, right? You don't see non-human primates um, making social comparisons with individuals they've never met before. Well, that's not true. You actually do see that with the gelatas. It's exactly what they're doing. But they're doing that in the in the form of assessment. Um, and, and only once not, they meet them. You know. Right. And only, yes, only once they're doing the, the, right. They're not doing it like over Facebook. Yeah. Um, well, and so, yeah, so those are the things I think about. So that, that what, what you just said leads right into what I, what my second thought here, which is that 
you know, we're really good. We're really primed to make social comparisons. Uh, and, and today I think that, that the way in which we evolved our social comparison skills is mismatched with, with the world that we live in. Um, and so I think we end up making certain comparisons without very good data and coming to the wrong conclusion. So I want to give you two apparently contradictory examples. So approximately 80% of all drivers in the United States think that they're above average in terms of skill and caution. And that number varies a bit from one study to the next, but it, it's repeatedly between 70 and 90%. And so obviously that's not the case. It's not possible. And, and at the same time, I know that I'm an above average driver. There's no question. So, so that's one kind of point of comparison. We're not good at that comparison. And the other, because we think we're, we're better than we really are. But the other example is something I don't have much data on, but if I were to guess uh, the proportion of all academics or at least evolutionary biologists that have imposter syndrome, I bet that the, that, that the proportion is very high, right? The proportion that think that they are a below average yeah. or don't belong mm -hmm. in the field. And that too is a calculation made in error, but now in the opposite direction. And, and so let's assume that academics don't universally fall into the 20% of people that don't believe they're above average drivers. Right, and now we have people that are simultaneously believing they're much better drivers than they really are, and also much worse academics than they really are. <laughs> and so, I, I, I have some thoughts about what might explain those differences, but I'm eager to hear uh, what, what you think about that. No, tell me your thoughts on it first, because you, well, you've gotten you've gone into it. So okay. It. <laughs> well, so for one thing, we, I think part of it has to do with what you were just talking about. People put their best selves forward on like Instagram, right, or whatever, mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. I, like. At research conferences, wherever, CVs, we see all the good things people do, right, without ever seeing the bad things people do. And also, like, when I think about talks that I've seen that weren't very good, I don't really remember who the pe person was who gave it or what the content was, but I mm -hmm. remember the really good talks. Mm -hmm. Like, the talks that changed my life, I obviously remember those. Whereas drivers, right, it's the opposite. Whereas I remember the really bad drivers, but I've, mm. I've never been like, wow, that person was – they did a really good right. job being safe on that icy road. And so maybe it's just what gets our attention then biases our perception of what the, the distribution of people's skills are. Yeah, I think that's, and I think there's been some research and I, I would have to, I haven't read this in a while. So um, that has looked at these like differences in, in potential personality traits, like, um, you know, white men tend to uh, often overestimate their abilities, and um, whereas uh, women and people of color tend to underestimate their abilities. And so, and part of that is is just the social world that that you're you're living in, and you're sort of brought up to, um, you know, kind of have those expectations of what your life is going to look like. I think that's a very interesting thing. Like I ask my students sort of similar with their driving. I try to ask my students what grade they think they're going to get in the class. And I will say 95% of them say A's, right? When you think about the fact that like the average in the class is likely to be like a B, a lower B, that means that not 95% of my students are going to get A's, but they all go in. And the question there is, is that, are they misrepresenting their ability? Or are they missetting an expectation? And are those different things? <laughs> hmm. I don't know. Um, like, do they just expect that they'll get an A and that's what they expect they should get because that's what they deserve? Or do they actually think that they're going to take this class and that they're going to know the material so well that they're going to get an A? Um, and I think those are different things. I don't know, but that doesn't really answer your question. But I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I think that there are on the extreme sides of those spectrums of, of individuals who, 
consistently use social comparisons as a way to feel less than individuals who um, always overestimate themselves compared to others. Um, you get much more of like a, a bell curve, right? Where a lot of us tend to fall in the middle and it sort of depends on, on where we are um, and what we're talking about that might shift us feeling one way or another. Yeah. Um, something that came to mind as you were describing the, the troublesome capuchin that would destroy the toy is that mm -hmm. so much of human psychology as a field is devoted to understanding pathology. And like none of animal cognition, I mean, I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, but I hear about, you know, psychological pathology in animals essentially never, right? Like when we observe behaviors, it's always an explanation looking for an adaptive explanation. And, and I essentially never hear about the consideration even of pathological explanations. Um, and so I guess I'd be interested to hear if you think that pathology is is under considered in animal behavior or or if perhaps those things really are specific to to humans because we live with medicine in a modern world uh. yeah can you like elaborate a little bit on what you sort of mean by pathology in, in sure well so like when you know if if a person goes around and, and kills 12 people right we would right. we would say they had a pathology that caused them to do yes. that if an yes. animal went around and killed 12 people we or not 12 people an animal goes around and kills 12 group mates we'd be saying what what was the adaptive root of that what are they right. getting out of right. it and so uh, right yeah 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 i get what you're saying yeah and i think that's that's a i just think that's that shows where we are um right we can't pull an abnormal behavior before we know what a normal behavior is mm. uh, for a social group, right? And as humans, we have a, a good idea just of like what is uh, socially normal and accepted and, and what isn't because we're also in our own heads. So we have a sense of what we would do and what we would never do. And so I, I do think that that's, that's part of it. Is that it. We can't quite get at individual variation and individual differences in a meaningful way uh, if we don't have a larger understanding of of how these behaviors um, sort of like what is the normal range in in a behavior or, or in a cognitive strategy, right? So, with non-human primate cognition and animal cognition more generally, we're still asking questions of are they cognitively capable of X? So you want one individual to show they can do it to say check that species is cognitively capable of X. Now, maybe that one individual was cognitively capable of X, right? So, so that's one of the things that I think um, is the reason we don't, we don't talk about pathologies. With that being said, there's certainly behaviors that become apparent are abnormal. Um, and I think one of the ones that is sort of innate, universal across most animals is incest. It's not common to see incestuous um, relationships because there's usually mechanisms in place to prevent incest. So when you see individuals in a chimpanzee who might prefer to mate with a close relative, right, that is abnormal in that that's not the normal um, sort of uh, over time behavior that you see chimpanzees do. Um, so I don't know if we would call that pathologies uh, or if that's just a, a matter of distinction in, in terminology. Um, but in order to understand uh, what might fall outside of the range of normal, we have to understand the total variation. And when it comes to something like social cognition, that variation is going to be extraordinarily large in how individuals make make certain choices. You talked earlier about 
the monkey that pulls on all the ropes and takes all the bananas, which <laughs> speaks more broadly to, to the challenge of designing experiments uh, to reliably measure cognition. As we were communicating before, before we came online here, one of the things that you mentioned is that the version of behavioral experiments that we end up seeing in papers or at conferences or in the news are the final versions of experiments that have had numerous previous iterations. Because animals, especially primates, are quite clever and don't always behave the way that, that we imagine that they will. So can you give us some additional examples from your work or, or some of the failed attempts at experimental design that eventually led to success? Yeah, um, I, I feel like that that's one of the, the fun things that I like about studying um, cognition, right, is the developing the methodologies and then often finding yourself entirely outsmarted by by the monkeys that, that you study or finding that you totally fail to see a potential solution that they had so clear to them that totally changes the way you're, you're doing the study. This is something that we had going on right now. When we were trying to get this apparatus, this between group apparatus built between two other groups, but they're further away. So the first two groups, it was about five feet. Now they're at about 10, 12 feet away. And so getting this apparatus and getting them to pull that distance and not, you know, have a massive piece of 12 foot rope, just like roaming around the cage where another individual would grab it and do whatever they did with the rope. We went through so many different iterations of this. We put in a bar pull pulley system that went through PVC pipe. It was perfect. It was the most beautiful apparatus that we've ever built. I swear it was amazing. And they couldn't figure out how to pull the rope in. I, <laughs> there was no difference. I wasn't handing them a rope. They just had to get the rope, stick their hand out and pull it. And they just didn't want, like, they didn't want to. Like, it just was something about that wasn't as uh, innate to them as being handed a rope that they pull in. Uh, and so reaching out and grabbing the rope themselves and pulling it this way, the way that they would say a laundry line was just not something that, that they wanted to do. So we had to just scratch that and go back to the super simple apparatus where I hand them a rope and have them pull it in that way. So there's a lot of examples of this. I think the first time I did my playback with Gelatas is, is one of my favorites. Uh, until then, Gelatas hadn't responded really strongly to playbacks. Unlike baboons, um, they tend to be just kind of less curious. And so going into it, we had the idea that they weren't going to respond very strongly. So we were trying to find a situation that might cause a strong response. I brought my assistant out, who at the time had just graduated from the University of Michigan and had never been working with gelatas. And she was the one who gets the man to speaker. And so the first time we go out, we see a group of bachelor males. And it's a bit of an unusual situation. There are no other leader males around. So you wouldn't expect as a bachelor that you're going to hear a leader male call. But we thought this would be a good test of like, are they actually attending to, to this information and is it causing a response? And so my assistant goes and hides behind a bush with the speaker day one being in the field and plays the call. And it caused this group of 20 something bachelor males to charge at the speaker. They were like jumping over her head and around her looking for the caller. And she's just like, oh, my God, <laughs> what is happening? And I'm like, oh, I drop I drop the camera in filming. I'm like, oh, no, I have you know, managed to kill my assistant on day one. Now, gelatas aren't aggressive towards people, so that wasn't going to happen. But um, it was a super intense response, and, and we had a massive ceiling effect. And it was very clear that the reason we had a massive ceiling effect was because it was unusual. They didn't know that there was a leader male there, and they heard a leader male challenging them, so they were going to go investigate. So um, it was just something that we had to then tailor and make sure that whenever we were doing the study, it was always from the direction of a leader to bachelors, a direction from bachelors to leaders, so that they would respond, but that they wouldn't just go, you know, totally off because it was an unusual situation. So I wasn't testing there whether they were attending to the information in the call. I was testing whether they it was a, a violation of expectation. There was no individual there, and then there was. 
Okay, I have one more question, mm-hmm. which is that I've been thinking about empathy, and empathy is kind of a strange thing in the evolutionary world. It seems like mm-hmm. like some level of empathy, I'm sure, is probably shared by non-human primates and also by maybe non-primates. But I think it's quite likely that the extent to which humans are able to empathize with complete strangers or animals or movie characters is probably unique to humans. And it strikes me that empathy relies on our ability to compare our experience to others. And and simultaneously, social comparison relies on our ability to get inside the mind and feelings of others. And so I'm wondering if, if... if social comparison and empathy co-evolve and if we should expect them to co-evolve. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I think that um, empathy is an, an understanding of an, how another individual goes through it, putting yourself in their shoes. And so um, it makes a lot of sense that if you're in tune to others in a comparative way where you're comparing yourself to them, you can also be in tune to them when you can say, Oh, I know what that feels like, what you're going through. I know what that feels like. Um, so yeah, I think that would be that 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 makes sense to me. I've never actually thought about it in that way, but I really I really like that. And I think about it with like, um, you know, uh, just popping into my head right now this notion of like the the winner effect mm-hmm. that we know happens in in birds. It happens in in a lot of animals that when they win um, a contest, they tend to have increases in testosterone. When they lose a contest, they have decreases in testosterone. Um, but in humans, you can see that from being, not being part in a contest, like just supporting a sports team at the world cup and your team wins, you have an increase in testosterone or supporting a, a, a political candidate and that candidate wins, you have an increase in testosterone. You're not actually fighting. You're not actually involved in the contest at all. In fact, it's happening over television. You have nothing to do with it. It's happening across the world. And yet you have these physiological responses as though you were the individual engaging in that same contest. And so uh, it's sort of an empathetic response that's um, not necessarily cognitive. You're not sitting there being like, I know what it feels like to be in your shoes. Exactly. But nonetheless, you're having a response based on another individual, uh, you know, another situation that you're not involved in. So, um, yeah, I could totally see how those piggyback off of each other um, and potentially could have co-evolved. 